My name is Sarah Armstrong, and this is episode 5 of A Summer of Spying. In this series, I explore the evidence presented during a court case held in 2020, during the pandemic, and on which I was a juror. In this episode, we have another go at deliberations, and I have another phone call. The internet records all kinds of things. All property transactions after 1995 can be traced online, and if photos were used to sell a property, chances are they are still online too. I've looked at the listings for the houses belonging to both the witnesses and the defendant. I've seen how they are decorated and furnished. I know their market rate and their previous sales values. As a novelist, I've probably crossed these online thresholds more than most, looking for private details in public images. In the last few years, in researching my Moscow Wolf series, I have learned all kinds of details about 1970s cities from the Soviet Union, Moscow, Bucharest, Minsk. With Google, it's easy now to walk along streets in countries I've never been to, but there's so much more than maps online, even going back 50 years. The particular places I write about were caught on personal home videotape and photographs in the 1970s and have now been uploaded. I can watch tourist information films and snippets from television news reports, look at propaganda posters, matchbox designs and ex-CIA maps, examine historical weather data, sunrise times, travel the metro and read documents with top-secret stamps crossed through. There is a website which has thousands of debriefing interviews with US Embassy staff from all over the world, with unexpectedly intimate stories. In my fictional research, I am touching on details from real lives, but focusing on how surveillance works when performed by the state on the individual. My characters exist in an ethically ambiguous world, crossing criminal and moral thresholds. Choosing to write about the 1970s allows me to use nostalgia as a further way to distance myself from the realities of spying. And while writing about spies, I have often enjoyed feeling like one myself. The Soviet Union ended well before the internet got underway, and yet there are all sorts of personal and secret visual memories stored online. Just imagine what is stored about us. But just because the information is available, does that make it fair game to use it? The number of photos of the witness's house that I found online surprised me. From my experience of searching for information about Moscow, I know that a search for images can produce even more interesting results than all. I was hoping for one or two photos to refresh my memory, but there were a lot more than that. As well as the photographs of the finished house, which indicated it had been put on the housing market, I found it was also possible to find the sales photographs from 2017, when the house was bought by witnesses two and three. I'm aware that looking at the houses of real people online is a different kind of surveillance to researching historical fiction. I haven't invented the characters. They are people with ongoing lives, and that is why I'm not naming them or the places where they live. I'm also aware that it says something about me, whether it's extreme nosiness or something more disturbing. And yet this intrusion into the lives of others is something which is now open to anyone with a phone or internet access. Haven't I been asked as a juror to be invested in what happens to these people? How do you turn that off? There is another reason why surveillance is important. This event took place in a private house on a public road, but every moment of the crime and the aftermath was recorded, 
either with images or sounds, and often both. Because along with the underfloor heating and quartz worktops, this house has an alarm system with internal video capture, a video front doorbell, and external CCTV cameras. Surveillance is portrayed as a way to combat lawbreaking, yet it doesn't prevent crimes from happening, it just recalls them for review later. We are still coming to some kind of accommodation with the different ways in which surveillance works, trying to decide whether privacy is worth more than security, if freedom trumps convenience. Surveillance works across space and time, and I've used the same techniques to explore 1970s Moscow and 2020 Essex. It's not just a matter of the state watching its citizens. We, as the public, are also watching. There is a sense of empowerment in the way we can use phone cameras to record those in a position of authority. Yet it can also sometimes amount to digital vigilantism, recording and exposing behaviour we disagree with. Bad drivers, bad dog owners, bad people all posted to Facebook. These examples are public in the sense that we can see the results. When someone puts a video doorbell or CCTV on their home, what happens to that information? I think it suggests a line being crossed between a building being a private retreat and somewhere that public events happen. CCTV cameras are promoted as reducing the chance of physical crimes against your property. But what worries me is the legacy. These cameras are projecting a sense of ownership over the space around the house as well as recording the people who live nearby. If the witnesses do sell this house, they are leaving behind all of that surveillance technology, normalising the idea that we should all be watched. Every public space is political, and now with COVID-19 rampant, this is even more visible with instructional sprayed footprints or stickers, as in the court. This year, more than most, private spaces are also public spaces. If we are lucky, our homes have become a haven as we wait to see what kind of country we'll be left with. As jurors, the supposed sanctity of our homes must have influenced our view of the crime unfolding on CCTV, the armed man breaking his way into our house. How frightening did the situation have to be in order for the two men to be unable to recognise this man they knew? No one is disputing that the defendant is the man who broke into the house that night, but the idea of two people who had known him well for months didn't recognise him is weirdly fascinating. The stability of their lives has been challenged. Both witnesses two and three make clear their sorrow at being exiled, chased from their home by the memory of what happened. I imagine the disruption that COVID-19 might add to this sense of being displaced. That's, of course, if they were actually living there. I try to remember the police body camera footage from when they are in the dining room, looking at the injuries witness two has sustained. I try to think, as we pan to witness one getting the water at the sink, are there any plates or glasses, anything? They have only just finished eating, they all mention it, so surely they wouldn't have tidied it all away. I just don't remember anything which suggests there have been a meal. We have a verdict. I give a note to the bailiff who takes it to the judge. We wait a bit and then eat our lunch early because this time it really is going to be over. When the judge is free, he summons the prosecution and defence counsels. It isn't the defence counsel we know away on another case, but a woman taking his place. The defendant is called back to the dock 
the live stream switched on for the people watching in the other courtroom, and then finally it is our turn. Charge 2. Having a baseball bat as an offensive weapon with the intention to cause harm to a person. Not guilty. At the first not guilty, there is excitement on screen as people watching in the other courtroom beckon to the defendant's wife to come and watch. She must have been hiding in the corridor out of sight, dreading the worst. Charge 4. Aggravated burglary with the intention to cause grievous bodily harm to witness 2. Not guilty. At the second not guilty, arms in the air, they celebrate the dismissal of the largest charge which could have given him a sentence of 10 years. Charge 5. Causing actual bodily harm to witness 3. Guilty. At the final verdict of guilty, their hands lower and they look round at each other. How bad is that? Is, is that okay? The screen in the courtroom above the jury benches, as usual, shows the family and friends of the defendant. As I concentrate on delivering the verdicts, which are complicated by majority verdicts that I have to get right, I see none of the reaction. Some jurors watch the screen, other jurors watch the defendant, see him sink down with relief on hearing the second not guilty. The silent reactions are described to me when we are back in the jury lounge. The judge thanks us for our time, a benevolent figure, before turning to the defendant. He sternly tells the defendant he is not without charm, as if it were a character flaw. There are no more smiles and encouraging comments for us. We've completed our work and now his starts. He invites us to return to the courtroom, whoever is interested to hear sentencing. Having delivered the verdict, it isn't about a case now. It's about a man with friends and family who have turned up day after day to keep him company via a screen. We return to the jury lounge, reclaim our phones and our chairs and chat. No one leaves early. We all return to the courtroom for one final time to hear sentencing. The first two charges are those that he had pleaded guilty to. Charge 1, criminal damage, gives a sentence of 12 months. Charge 3, taking the knife, is 9 months. Charge 5, the only charge we've convicted him on, as three months. The charges are to be served consecutively, totalling two years. The judge says he's been an exemplary prisoner. Arrangements are made for the defendant to reimburse a small weekly sum to the insurance providers who are paid to repair the damage to the house. That seems utterly bizarre to me. Eleven minutes inside the house, six days in court, nine months on remand, a sentence of two years. The defendant's months on remand are the equivalent to serving 18 months after sentencing. The judge sends him back to prison for another four months. On our way down the stairs, we can see his family and friends standing in the main visitor area around the replacement defence barrister, and they look excited. As I wait with a fellow juror for her lift on the corner outside, we learn that the defendant is to be released that day on good behaviour. He will be back home for his youngest child's first birthday. There is no post-verdict trip to the pub in a pandemic. Our performance as a jury is over. Early March 2020, there was a backlog of just under 40,000 Crown Court cases owing to cuts, court closures and a reduction in the number of sitting days assigned to judges due to COVID-19. By November 2020, the backlog was just over 53,000. In January 2021, a 
A trial was listed to be heard in March 2023. The Defence Council on the case we've looked at here was supposed to have a new case starting on the 4th of January, but that seems to have been postponed. And after getting away relatively lightly for most of 2020, in January 2021, Essex is in lockdown with the rest of the country and a new strain of the virus is filling the hospitals. On the 11th of January, 76 out of 117 prisons had prisoners who tested positive for COVID-19. Also in January, at home in Colchester, I have been emailed by someone connected with the case. He's given me his phone number. He's no longer the defendant, so what do I call him? The businessman, the dad, the football fan. He was always all of these things. Here I'll call him Matt. He's friendly and open, happy to answer anything I ask, which is good because I have so many questions. But first, after spending so long observing Matt, I ask what we, the jury, look like to him. We weren't the jury he was hoping for, he says. An older crowd, stern-faced, the kind of people who looked as if they would be straight down the line. He'd wanted to see a younger group, peers closer to his age, or people who looked as if they had experience of building or the stresses of running a business. He knew that the camera footage had shown him at his lowest, his very worst, for those few minutes. Now he had to prove that the person we'd seen wasn't really who he was. He said it was hard for him, second-guessing what we might be thinking, wondering if we'd already judged him. But after a couple of days he relaxed. Watching our reactions, he could see that we were listening to the evidence. Every morning, Matt was escorted in handcuffs by two guards from his prison cell, across the yard, to an area where he'd be strip-searched and then dress again in his suit for court. Escorted to the van in cuffs again, he sat in a tiny compartment on a moulded plastic chair, legs pressed against each wall, the door closing tight against his knee. Apparently the fan that I'd seen in the glass wall dock behind him wasn't ever switched on, for he only took his suit jacket off once that I noticed. I hadn't even considered how oppressive the temperature would be in the holding cell. Matt said the guards tested the temperature about every hour, if it hit 29 degrees, they would have to send everyone out. It reached 28 degrees and stayed borderline. In the long hours that he sat there while we deliberated, Matt had only the occasional coffee and days-old newspapers to break up the time. Surprisingly, one place which wasn't too hot was the prison kitchen, where he was one of ten prisoners chosen from the population to work. Presently warm in the winter, on hotter days the doors were opened and they could go out for fresh air. He describes it as a relaxing time, working with the other older, trusted prisoners. The rest of the time he had the run of the wing, where he could do relatively normal things like go upstairs to make toast or do laundry. Chelmsford Prison is a holding prison, meaning it contains both young offenders and a general population. It has a reputation for violence, and Matt says this was a problem caused by the younger prisoners mostly, trying to make a name for themselves. He says that someone was beaten around the face for stealing a couple of packets of crisps. The start of lockdown in March meant that there were no longer fights every day, but it also meant no classes were running and there was no access to the gym or the library. Towards the end of that first lockdown, each prisoner was given a pack of very basic English and maths worksheets to occupy them. These were aimed at the younger prisoners who were likely to have dropped out of education with no qualifications. It doesn't sound like much of a distraction. 
With everyone confined to their cells, Matt felt lucky that as a key worker, he could leave his cell to work in the kitchen. In the morning, the guards would open the ten cells for the ten people working down there, leave them to get ready and then come back to escort them down. One morning, one of the workers didn't come out. Matt tried to wake him, but he was stone cold. He died of a drug overdose overnight. Matt says that drugs were all over the prison. Lockdown also meant that he had no visitors at all between March and October. What I'd overheard about him being released in July turned out to be wrong. Matt said that while he saw men with multiple previous violent convictions released with a home detention curfew tag, Chelmsford Prison has a policy of refusing to allow anyone convicted of carrying a bladed article be allowed out with one. He believes any other prison would have allowed him to go home. Matt still can't understand why he was charged with aggravated burglary, the same category which is applied to armed gangs holding people hostage while they rob their house. It applies to the kind of story which gets in the local paper. There is nothing on the internet about Matt's case at all. Nothing from this case even seems to be included under the list of crimes recorded in the postcodes around the witness's house in October 2019. Other points feel unresolved to Matt. After all, Witness 2 was not the only person covered in blood when the police arrived. He wonders, did the police test the baseball bat for fingerprints to see if anyone else had held it? When Matt was finally taken by the police for medical treatment, the doctor at the hospital established that he had an impact injury to his head. The wound needed three stitches. He'd like there to be some way to check the reputations of clients in the same way that customers can check the reputations of workers they employ. He'd like there to be a way to even up the threat of using unfairly negative reviews as a bargaining chip. It's a reminder of another way we surveil each other, marking each other's behaviour, holding criticism over each other as a threat. It's also a reminder that both sides, the employer and the employed, can be vulnerable. Matt was released 12 months of the day that he pulled up at the witness's house. It was October 2020, the month the prison service finally developed a face mask strategy. We speak for an hour and a half. He's friendly, funny and ready to move on. There was a dark period when his family had to deal with debt collectors as well as his absence. He spent the last couple of months pulling everything back together and it's looking good. There are new tenders out and he's been busy working. He hopes there will be more big jobs in the months ahead, and so do I. If you'd like more background information on the story behind this case, check out the show notes for a link to the ebook which accompanies this podcast, published by Sandstone Press. It goes into a lot more detail. You'll also find a link to my novels, published by Sandstone Press as well. Thanks to James Imrie for the great sound editing, excellent music and much needed technical support and to Sue Dawes for production and script editing. Thank you for listening.